Hey everyone, this is Josh McPherson, lead pastor of Grace City Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you're a longtime Christian or just starting to ask questions about Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. I hope this message challenges you to think hard and moves you to respond in such a way that results in more freedom and purpose in your life. Enjoy the message. Uh, last time we were in Acts, was two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 13, the foundation of Paul's dissidents. And I, I did that because I wanted that in our mind and heart as we went into then chapters 22 through 28, as we begin looking at how Paul, essentially this is the beginning of the end. He gets to Jerusalem, and, and from there he's going to march all the way to the top of the head of the snake. And uh, the book will end with him joyfully declaring the kingdom of God is unstoppable. And then shortly thereafter, uh, history records that they, that they murdered him. And so uh, we're looking at how a faithful Christian engages an increasingly crazy culture, and the, the roadmap Paul gives us here is very, very helpful. What I want to do is just recap for you quickly that sermon in case you missed it, even if you didn't, so it is fresh in our mind. So we have these principles that Paul laid out in Romans 13 that I think is critical for us to understand in these days, a text that has not been studied much by Christians living in a Christian culture. We, we didn't need it. It was just kind of go with the flow and what the government says that works because they're a righteous government built on the natural and moral law of God, right? And so there was no critical thinking. And then that's kind of needed to change. And we saw a lot of bad thinking in relationship to Romans 13 crop up in the last several years. So we've been doing some careful thinking on it so we can think better and more biblically about our role as citizens in a real world. Uh, so here it is from Romans 13. This is, this is the, I'm going to give myself 60 second flyover. We see Paul teach there holy jurisdiction, namely it's government was God's idea. So we're not anti-government. Government is, is, a, is a jurisdiction that God created for the good and blessing and order of humanity. We see holy limitations that government's job is to punish evil, reward good, and protect its citizens, very limited in scope and nature. We see holy submission. We're not, again, we're, 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 not, we're not scoff laws. We believe in submission. The submission is taught explicitly in the scripture as bringing blessing and favor on man. So we're, we live in an, a, a hierarchy, a hierarchical world where God's told kids to obey parents and, and, a, and a wife to submit to a husband and, and Christians to submit to spiritual leadership and citizens to submit their government. And and governments to submit to God, and all of them are submitting uh, to each other as an act of submission to God. So submission isn't a bad thing. It's a good and godly thing. It's God's idea and brings human flourishing where there's godly leadership. Holy responsibility. We talked about Paul pointing out the fact that those in power are there because God appointed them, and, and, and the angle of that text has been recently, well, so see, you got to do what they say. Well, no, you got to flip that coin around and say, yeah, God has put them in authority, and they are there as ones who will be held accountable by God for how they exercise their authority, which is um, uh, the holy accountability part. They're, they're there in authority as ones under authority. The holy foundation then is um, natural law and moral law, which don't really get talked about much in our day. And I've reflected on if I've even talked to you about it that much. And I, I was... I was like, I don't know if I have instructed our church family on the nature of natural law and the nature of moral law and how it's underpinning all uh, of life and how we should uh, refer to it often because when a society sets itself up to go against the natural law of God and the moral law of God, they are charting a course for destruction. You don't have to be a prophet to see, yeah, this isn't going to end well. And so uh, Holy Foundations there, we said a natural moral law undergirds civil law. 
So civil law doesn't fall out of the sky. It's not made up by whoever's in power. Civil law has a God-given responsibility to be built on the foundation of, of natural law and moral law. And when it gets built outside of the foundation of God's natural law and moral law, it is on a foundation that will crumble. Seven, holy dissidents, churches, governments, conscience. Uh, there to correct and rebuke. We've seen very clearly all throughout Scripture, and the little bit I did, we did not consent. I gave 11 examples in Scripture, explicit examples, where godly, heroic, noble men and women who are looked to and, and counted as heroes of the faith, who, who, I mean, they make Hebrews 11 chapter, the hall of heroes of the faith, they exercise, um, exercise their conscience against a government because God is has not created the, the jurisdiction of government to be out on their own as an entity unto themselves. They're there as one who are held accountable to the law of God, and it's the jurisdiction of the church that is, is to be there as a government's conscience. Number eight, higher allegiance. We all allegiance to God first. And then lastly, greater good when the church is silent, everyone suffers. Uh, so that what we, re, we reflected on those nine truths from Romans 13, and we know those are in the mind and heart of Paul because he wrote Romans 13 just a few months before this story we're going to read. So in, Rome, in, in Acts chapter 20 is where Paul is in Macedonia, and he pins the letter to the Romans there. And then two chapters later, we're into chapter 22, and we're seeing him live out what he wrote, which is such a wonderful kindness of God. We don't have to guess about what Paul was meaning when he said these things. We're not trying to figure out, well, yeah, but what does that look like in the face of real life when you're being persecuted by people who are lying about you and the government's getting increasingly host, host, um, hostile towards you? It's like, well, read the rest of Acts and see how Paul lived, which is what we're going to do. <laughs> so that was the, yeah, three-minute fly over there. Um, so this is now the story of Paul's dissidence, the story of Paul's dissidence. We're going to pick this up in Acts chapter 22. But before, and I'm not going to put it up here, it's a lot. I'm just going to read it as animated as I can to hold your attention. Or you can open your own Bible and read along, which would be even more awesomeness. Um, before we get to chapter 22, I want us to get running started. And just by way of apology, we're going to read a little bit tonight. And so let's get it all, uh, I was going to say out of the way, but that's a terrible way to talk about the Word of God. Let's get it all on the table, uh, and then we'll talk about it, uh, because it's story and narrative form. And I'll do a little commentary on the way, but not much. Uh, I want to start in Acts chapter 21, verse 27, where, where Adam preached a really, really good sermon that you'd, if you missed, you should go back and listen to in relationship to um, five tactics or five, the five nature of, of the church in negative world reality. We've been talking about the book of Acts is how to be a Jesus-filled church, and we're adding a tagline, how to be a Jesus-filled church in an increasingly negative world reality, because the, uh, the world that the church was born in, I would argue, was probably more neutral world, if you're remembering those categories we've been working with in the last few, few, few weeks and months. Neutral world, not a big deal, whatever, uh, increasingly becoming hostile so that as the phases of negative world move from um, family uh, to church to entertainment to art to academia to business, and then we're going to see government, th th those chips are falling throughout the book of Acts just as they have been falling in our day. And now we're getting to, we're going to get to the chip of government, and it's going to hold for a little while here, and then we'll see it falls in the end. But, but that's kind of where we're at. So let's get a running start here. Uh, verse 27 to chapter 21. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews in the province of Asia saw Paul to temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him. Okay, Paul's a Jew. These are Jews. He was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was like on their team until he turned and followed Jesus, and they haven't been happy about it since. And now they're shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. 
This is the man who teaches everywhere, everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen uh, Trophimus, we'll call him, and, if, and if the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed, circle that word, that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. You need to think like Black Hawk Down crazy. You know, have you read the book Black Hawk Down or, or, or watched the movie like Mogadishu and like, and like, just like in the streets, crazy, just this, just this vitriolic, demonic rage grabbing the guys out of the choppers and like, like that's this moment. I mean, this, stop thinking nice flannel board Bible story and start thinking like Paul's life is on the line here. Terrifying moments, terrifying moments. While they were trying to kill Paul, News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now we're into the, the ju- jurisdiction of government. Okay, the, Jew, the Jews were like a, like a religious subsect of the Roman Empire, and they're getting all bent out of whack because of some guy, and now it's, they're making it an issue that the Roman government has to deal with. We're going to see what happens. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran to the crowd. So this is where the do, 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 the music is picking up, right? This is intense, like angry, like, you know, Mogadishu mob, and now like soldiers and rucksacks and guns, and they're running to the mob, like, what is going to happen? When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, <laughs> okay? They're not just arguing with him. They're physically assaulting him. They're tearing at his clothes. I mean, if, if you've ever seen a mob turn on someone, it is terrifying, it is utterly piranha, just terrifying. That's happening. Soldiers roll up. They're like, now we have a conflict of authority. Verse 33, the commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. <laughs> Isn't that great? Not quite how we do things here. You know what I mean? It's like, roll up, arrest everyone. Okay, what's going on here? You know, this is their way to kind of like, trying to control the scene and establish some order here to figure out who hit John or who hit Paul, I guess. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, classic. And since the commander could not get at the truth, thankfully the government at the time appeared to care about the truth, because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob, I'm not making this up, this isn't preacher hyperbole, violent, terrifying mob law. The violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. Now, I imagine like these are big Roman soldiers, and the mob, the mob has such a disregard for rule of law and such a disrespect for authority, they're now putting the soldiers' lives at risk as they're trying to get at Paul. And so I, I, I've... I've I've moved people before, getting them off the street in Apple Blossom, and you're moving them, and it's crazy, and you got a buddy with you, and you're like, let's go, and you pick them up, and they're, boop, their feet goes off the ground, and they just touch every 10 feet, and you're moving, right? That's what's happening here. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago. At this point, 
Paul's like, am I in an episode of punked? You know what I mean? Like, like are, who? I don't know who that guy is. What, what, do I look Egyptian? Like, it's like, this is, I'm living in a dream. This is crazy. Paul answered, no, you moron. <laughs> Sir, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicily. What he's, what he's, his tongue-in-cheek is like, I couldn't be further from an Egyptian terrorist. I'm a Jew from Sicily, bro. A citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were silent, he said to them in Aramaic, and then that's where Pastor Paul ended last, or uh, uh, Pastor Adam ended last. Remember, he's like, and we're done because that's the last chapter. So he left us on a cliffhanger. That's where we're picking up now. All that context to read this now, verse one. Brothers and fathers, Listen now to my defense. So angry, violent, demonically enraged, disregarding and disrespecting authority, putting, quite frankly, their own selves at risk of being thrown in prison because of the riot they're causing, like, like could not be more violent, like out of their right minds. No one even knows why they're there except they want that guy dead. And he's like, can I talk? Hey, 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 he quiets him down. And he says, listen to me. And my defense, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Now, what a great example of contextualization. He's not contextualizing truth so as it, 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 to make it unrecognizable anymore. He's contextualizing tradition and communication so they can understand and, and his message and so he can make it intelligible to them. So he's going to speak in Aramaic. Oh, it's a tactic. It quiets him down. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this very city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as jealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. At this point, what's he doing? It's a rhetorical device. He's connecting with them. <clears throat> He's like, I I I've been on your team. I know your playbook. I, 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 can I can connect with you. We're going to see in the end, none of this works, <laughs> which is a signal to us. I think we can stop trying so hard to connect because if people hate you, they're going to hate you, right? It's not like, oh, oh, he's actually a nice guy. That's not what's going to work. So let's stop hoping that works, okay? But, but we'll let Paul do his thing here. He's connecting with him. Interesting point, pause sermon, has nothing to do with this sermon, but interesting point, when he says, I studied under Gamaliel, if you flip back uh, for, for uh, how about context nerds, let's look at Acts, uh, uh, I think it's, I gotta find this now, five, chapter five, verse 34, the apostles are hauled in front of the Pharisees in Sanhedrin for the first time, and they're getting ready to stone him. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men be put outside for a little while. And then that's where he makes a speech. Hey, if God's for him, don't put yourself against him because then you'll put yourself against God. If God isn't for him, it won't last anyways. Why don't you just let us see where it goes? Remember that cool story? That was Paul's mentor which means Paul was probably present for all of Acts 1 through 8, watching everything as it was happening. 
Now, here's the crazy thing. When he said he was schooled, it's the same word, padea, that Paul uses in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 when he tells dads how to raise their children. It's a Greek word that talks about a fully immersive, stem to stern, soup to nuts, top to bottom, head to toe education of a child, not just during school hours, but in all of life. He's saying that's how, he said, I was steeped in the traditions of the Greeks and, you know, and the Stoics and the philosophers in Judaism. Like, like, like from the time I could walk, like that's all I heard and saw because the Greeks viewed education not as a class you attend, but as a culture you're immersed in. This is why, by the way, we're starting Garden Sea Academy, because we've lost sight of what an education is and what it means in our culture. It's been an intentional sleight of hand by a secularist-driven worldview to say, one, education can be neutral, and two, it just takes place at class somewhere else. No, 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 no. An education for a child that is built to absorb everything in their environment is, is I should back this up, it is critical that parents make the education of a child God-centered and God-saturated because, saturated, saturated, because a child is unconsciously absorbing everything around them every moment of the day. And so a Christian vision of education will be one that says, um, if we want them to grow up to be followers of, of Jesus and to see the world through a biblical lens, we must saturate them in a biblical worldview and biblical culture when they're most impressionable, so that what they're absorbing, even unconsciously, is godness, not worldliness. And so Paul is, 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 was schooled in the way of Gamaliel, uh, how do you say it here, uh, Gamaliel. Here's what's interesting. And now I'm way off track, and so I'll, I'll cut stuff at the end so I don't go over, so don't panic. But, uh, but this is, it's, thurs, it's verbal process uh, service, right? It's so fun. Um, when we think about how we're educating our children, there are two ways to think about education today. And in the church, quite frankly, needs to figure it out faster and do better and more biblical and critical thinking in relationship to where, what we're sending our kids to every day. Because it is not only um, a travesty that we have a tax-funded weaponized institution that is aggressively pushing a not just godless but demonic worldview on our children as if that's not bad enough. We have a tax-funded system that is catastrophically failing in even the basics and rudiments of an education in relationship to math, English, literature, science, history, reading, logic, rhetoric, refutation, argumentation, and the basic tools a human needs to have a functioning brain to contribute in a productive way to whatever society they go into. Now, we can get lots of discussions about can you learn those things apart from God and be No, no, no. But here's the thing. Do you want to raise a Paul-like son or daughter? And you should say, yes, as a subtext, we want to raise a Jesus-like son or daughter, but Paul be a good example to follow too, because he did say, inspired by the Spirit of God, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, one of the things you have to do then is give your kid the faculties, I got a real back here, I get too excited, the faculties to think, which means they got to read, which means they have to have some sense 
about where they exist in the universe of time. They have to read some history. They have to have the humility to go, I should read the thoughts of other people outside the TikTok videos I watch to see if I may not see the world in all of its complexities as perfectly, as holy as other people have seen. So I look at the education by God's grace that my kids are getting, and I think, my gosh, my mom gave me an awesome education. The education my kids are getting are 10 times, I think, what I got, and I want to keep 10xing that value through the generations with the formation of Garden City Academy. Because if students are not taught to think and reason, if they're not taught the basic laws of logic so they can spot and refute where logic is invalidated and, and, and where there are, oh my goodness sakes, you watch, okay, these are, I'm like on my eighth rabbit trail here. Take a deep breath. The story I shared at our lectures was the example of George Whitfield. He got saved when he was, I want to say, 24, 25, 26. So I, I, I'm, I'm within months of the, of the real date there. He gets saved, okay? And I think like early colonial America, right? I mean, like before the Declaration. He gets saved, and he spends, watch this, he spends the first four months of his conversion, you know what he's doing? On his knees, in his rented flat, reading his Greek New Testament. Find me five 25-year-olds in a nation of 350 million people who could spend the first four months of their mid-20s conversion reading their Greek New Testament. What's the singular point I'm making? When education in general fails to equip people to think they bring much less to the table when they open the Word of God. George Whitfield, who lit on fire the American colonies and, and, and arguably laid the theological, ethical, moral, spiritual foundations for what would become this great experiment we know as America that we're losing in front of our eyes, was, was lit on fire by a man whose brain worked because he'd been given a world-class education and taught how to think. We want to raise disciples of Jesus. We want to raise kids who want to follow Jesus. And we want to teach them how to think because by and large, we are crippling the next generation by feel-good, self-esteem-driven, garbage education that is preparing them only to be happy with cheap entertainment while tyrannical governments run their lives. You realize the NFL is like is, is, is a psychop, right? I mean, seriously, just to keep people entertained and like, look over here, look over here, look over here, while they're running us off the cliff. You need as an act of spiritual discipline and wherewithal to like pump the brakes on how much just raw entertainment you take in so you're, you're not doled into a stupor and unable to see what's happening around you. So... Paul, you're like, where did Paul come from? Paul came from the halls of serious thinking so that when he was saved, the faculties he brought to the table were significant. We cannot underestimate the value of giving the gift to our children, the gift and ability to think and to reason. Not saying every kid's got to be a philosopher. No, no, no. But every kid should be given the gift of knowledge and wisdom 
and the faculty to know how to think. There's so much to explore in God's world that when you kneecap the mind's ability to think, you shrink the world that child can explore and enjoy. Where were we here? Uh, Verse 4. Okay. we got to get back on track here because we haven't even gotten to the main point of the sermon. Here we go. Verse, uh, he's, let's get to verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? It's very intimidating to try to sound like Jesus. I'm just going to be honest right now. But there's the red letters. Jesus, Jesus is talking. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of whom was speaking to me. Who, what shall I do, Lord? Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, where you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. Paul's recounting the conversion experience of Acts chapter 9. I preached a whole sermon on it. You can go listen to that if you'd like. I'm not going to preach here. We're just going to read it for context. Three times Paul's conversion story is recounted by Luke in Acts. One, the actual count of the actual event, and then twice as Paul recaps it before different governing officials in, in, in this crowd here that will play into the points I'm going to make to draw at the end. Interesting side note, when Jesus shows up, you don't argue with him, you ask him what you should do. Isn't that awesome? It's like, oh, I'm glad you knocked me off my, hor- my horse, Jehovah Jireh. I'm glad you showed up, King of Kings. I have a few beefs I'd like to talk to you about. That's, that's not the play. It's like, good Lord, I will do whatever you tell me to do if you will not strike me down dead right now. And w- what a great posture to be in as, as, a, as the, a, the Christian church in, in, in our times today. N- not to live with a abusing daddy kind of fear, but with a holy kind of fear that says, here's the deal. Who you are is so greater and so more terrifying than anyone else I know that I don't care what any of them think. What you say matters, so tell me what to do, and I'm on it. Just just tell me what to do, and I'm on it. Jesus continues, get up and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand in Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all of the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. God just gives Paul his job description. Let's keep it simple. Verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying to the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, Jesus said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, These people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. He doesn't necessarily argue with Jesus. He's just like, 
look, I, I, I see your point of view. I appreciate your perspective. I, I, think, I think you're being a little harsh on these people. These are my people. Like they're going to they, they're, they're gonna love me, connect with me. I was, I was born, raised here. They saw, I, they've seen me on their team. So I think I might have a special in with them. And Jesus is like, that's cute. You're obviously underestimating the, the root of the religious spirit. Jesus says to him, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. He didn't even answer him. He's like, he's like I appreciate that. Not even worthy of a rebuttal. So just go because I'm going to send you to fulfill the prophecy of old and to fulfill the words of Jesus and mirroring the life of Jesus. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Verse 22. This is very interesting. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. Now, I, I don't want to pretend to know you, but I'm going to conjecture that almost nobody in this room has had a hostile foreign pagan government standing behind them and a hostile religious crowd standing in front of them, the first of which could put you to death for reasons only they know, the second are calling for your death and saying, you're not fit to live. We must rid the earth of you. That's a moment. I mean, I don't know if you can put yourself there, but like that is a moment. As they were shouting, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, just like they're just going crazy. Just ah! The commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. It's just like, you know, you're in the fryer. Oh, great. Whoa, how did I get into the frying pan? Take him into the barracks and directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Isn't that classic? I was minding my business. They attack me, break laws, try to kill me. Put your life at risk. So you're going to flog me to ask me why they're doing that. Why don't you flog them? I don't know why they're doing that. This is crazy. I think this is the craziest you. We're, we're really going to do this? This is wild. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, so bro, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? ruh row, ruh row. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported, um, we're totally screwed. That's the Greek translation there. Um, I, I like it. Like he says, what are you going to do? <laughs> you like that? Classic. You know what I mean? When things go well, everyone on the team wants the credit. When things aren't going well, it's the captain's fault. Like, what are you going to do about this, man? What are you going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Multiple ways you could, you could take that. One, like, you know, he's doubting him. Or two, he believes him. He's, he's, he's like, gosh, I guess the price for citizenship is going down these days if this guy can get in. I mean, any way you can take it, but, but not, 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 not so positive. Paul says, yeah, you bought yours. That's great. I was born a citizen. Boop, boop. I mean, he's like, he's like I'm going to, this isn't like humble, go with the flow, whatever you say, Paul. This is like, 
I'm going I'm to wisely use my citizenship and political tactics to make you feel about this big. And it's interesting, Paul didn't mention it sooner. Like, if I'm Paul and they can arrest me, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm like, Roman citizen! Paul's like, let's see how far this goes. I think Paul's tactically letting, giving him a little rope so he can hang him with it. Now he's got him where he wants him. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately, like, <laughs> immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. See what Paul did there? He gave him enough rope to hang themselves, and now they're, now they're on the defensive. Now they're on the ropes. This, this is not, oh, I forgot to mention this, Paul. This is, this is tactical Paul. Being very intentional with how he engages both hostile crowds and pagan governments. Close story. That's the story. Now let's go get now let's go mine it for some nuggets. You ready? We'll make this quick and painless. It would be quick, won't guarantee it'll be painless. Here we go. Five tactics of Paul's dissidents. Number one, know your Jesus story thoroughly. If we're going to successfully be a Jesus-filled church in an increasingly negative world reality, it needs to start with us knowing who we are in Christ. Meaning if you're going to survive out in the world, out in your job, with your hostile, crazy family, in this increasingly, increasingly just clownville, woke, mind virus, like craziness we're living in, you need to know who you are and how Jesus saved you. Paul walks through his story, and he's remarkably detailed with it. And what I love about Paul is that he didn't have an experience and then move on to more varsity Christian experiences. He's like my dad. I've heard my dad's story 300 times. I got it out here, Keith. I don't think it's me. I think it's Adam. I know, you, you're, you're, that's because you're Pentecostal. You're, you're too Pentecostal. I'm, I still got my feet on the ground. Okay, here we go. I feel like it's like out here now. Is that okay? Yeah, great shot for the video. <sighs> I've probably heard my dad's story 300 times, 400 times, 500 times. And I've yet to hear him tell it without passion and emotion moving his voice. And my simple question for you is, do you know your Jesus story? Do, do, do you, have you revisited it? Re revisited it, 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 it? Have you revisited it? Have you reflected on it? Have you shared it? Well, we just did uh, Instagram stories with our city group, and, it, and I said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to Instagram your stories out here, and we're going to get seven minutes apiece to tell it, and we'll get through all of us in one night. It took us Eight weeks to get through all the stories because someone's telling their story and you're like, and then, and you're like, you, I can't be like, eh, time's up, sweetheart, you gotta let them go. And, and it was, we had eight people or 10 people and like one a night, so 10 weeks. And they were awesome. And we learned stuff about them. They learned stuff about them and their story, things they hadn't seen and realized. You can never tell your Jesus story enough. And if we're gonna be faithful in this increasingly crazy time, we need to know our Jesus story well. Because I'm guaranteeing you, there's more there than you've yet, yet to see. And it's still being written, which is awesome. The second tactic is you need to tell your Jesus story honestly and courageously. I'm adding adjectives as we go. <laughs> know your Jesus story thoroughly. 
And then you need to tell your Jesus story honestly and courageously. I love the fact that when Paul was talking about a story, he didn't, he didn't kind of brush over like, oh, my, you know, I, I had a few run-ins with some Jews, and you know, I mean, I, in the way, and I mean, I was, I was, I was slightly antagonistic to the way of Christ. And you know, he, he's like, I was trying to murder him. I know, hard to believe. I can hardly believe it either. I mean, I was terrible. You don't know how terrible I was. And oftentimes, I think we tend in this kind of, you know, nice society, we kind of want to like brush over the details. It's like, no, no, no. I mean, obviously be appropriate where appropriate and age appropriate and this and that. But if you've been at Grace City long, you'll know that we're okay with the rough edges and that we're okay with, 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 with the dark corners of the story because that's where the light of Christ shines the brightest and is most glorious. We've had people leave early on when we were trying to figure out who we were and root out the younger brothers and the older brothers. People leave. Like, that story those people shared was just too explicit. You know, I mean, they talked about how they almost committed suicide. I don't want my kid to hear that. Well, at some point they need to hear that, that there have been some people who are so depressed, they wanted to take their own life, and then Jesus saved them, and now instead of wanting to take their life, they're giving their life voluntarily to serve and follow King Jesus. Why would you not want your kid to hear that story? You, you need to adjust your parenting parameters, you know what I mean? Let's go. And so, do you know your Jesus story? Well, one, do you have one? It, maybe it's being written right now, watched online, or sh- ran, randomly showed up on Thursday night to hear the, 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 the quack yell for an hour, and you're like, this is, this is, this is well, what is it is. You're here in church, bro. That's wild. That should terrify you. That should tell you someone's after you. You know, stop watching Super Lads. Jesus gets us. <laughs> Jesus is going to get you. That's the ad that should have run. You know, he's going to get you unless you repent right? And you have an opportunity to repent today, which is exciting. Do you know your Jesus story? And then are you telling your Jesus story honestly and courageously to the point, and again, I want to be careful here because you know your context, to the point where it's, it, it, it might even get you in trouble. Like, if you're in a context where if you did tell your Jesus story, it would get you in trouble and you haven't gotten in trouble, you need to look in the mirror and deeply reflect with you and your conscience in the Lord whether or not you're being a faithful follower of Jesus in a negative world reality, or you're just keeping your head down, hoping someone else will stick it up and get shot at. You realize the less of you who speak up, the harder it's getting for the brave, courageous souls who are, which means you're actually contributing to the problem, not helping it. We need more humble, loving kind, gracious, godly voices who are courageously, boldly, unapologetically talking about what Jesus has done for them. You don't need to go in there with some like, you know, Josh McDowell, like ninja kung fu apologetic thing. Just go in there and tell them what Jesus has done for you. That's all you got to know. You, you, you got you to know your story and you got to be able to tell your story, and that is a compelling apologetic for the reality of Jesus, because nobody can take the work that God has done in you, to you, and now through you, away from you. That's your story. That's your work. And, and Paul here is like, look, we got lots to cover theologically and doctrinally and, and probably even politically, but let me start first with telling you about my Jesus and what he's done for me. And you can spit at me, punch me, whip me, beat me, kill me, 
You can't take it away from me because it's real. I saw it. I was there. And it's more real than the people I'm standing looking at in this moment. I'm telling you what, when you boldly, honestly, courageously tell your story, it moves the kingdom needle. It moves the kingdom needle because everyone in your world is, is virtue signaling or looking to see which way the winds are blowing so they give the right answer. Almost no one is stepping forward humbly and saying, let the chips fall. This is what I know to be true. Jesus is king of kings, and he is good, and he is kind, and he is great, and he is real. And he knows me, and I know him, and he's forgiven me, and I'm serving him, and it's a sweet deal. Would you like to know more? Speaking of... of Josh McDowell, I heard him tell a story. It was not Josh McDowell. It was the author of A Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. He's telling the story of being in the Chicago Tribune. I think it's the Chicago Tribune uh, 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 journal, journalist floor. And, and, he, and it's coming up on Easter. This is a great Easter story for you. And he, as he's leaving, at the end of the day, he feels the Holy Spirit prompt him to go ask that guy to come to Easter. And he's like, Lord, that guy is a hostile, like hardcore, died in world, stake-driven atheist. He will not want to talk to me. And the Holy Spirit, he just wouldn't let him leave. He's, and 